This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 21, recorded on May 25th, 2015. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Average Guy.tv studios here in a stormy Bellevue, Nebraska. I've been talking to folks all around the country. It seems like uh, it's raining just about everywhere, maybe except in California. And, of course, we, uh, we broadcast live each week, and uh, you can find the show notes to this program as well, all out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can contact us via email. Send that to me, Jim, at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track me down on Twitter, or if you'd like to call in your questions for us, you can use this phone number, 402-478-8450, and uh, we'll play those right here on the program. TheAverageGuy.tv, of course, is powered by Maple Grove Partners Web Hosting. It's secure, reliable, very reliable now as Christian's made some upgrades. We're going to talk about that here in a couple weeks over at uh, Home Gadget Geeks. Uh, high-speed hosting from people you know and trust. Of course, that's Christian and a lot of what's going on is happening near him right now as he's uh, doing some upgrades to uh, Maple Grove Partners. But, of course, find out more information about that, maplegrovepartners.com. And now Cyber Frontiers is a part of the Geeks Network. You can find the link to this show and many other great podcasts out at thegeeksnetwork, all one word, .com. And, uh, and so we want to thank them for passing stuff through to us as well. Well, from the confines, I always say from the confines of their dorm rooms at the <laughs> University of Maryland, but they're not there. They've moved. And uh, Christian, uh, welcome to another Cyber Frontiers. It looks like you've made it back to Buffalo. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to be back. Good to get some downtime from a uh, hectic semester and uh, get away from the pollen that is the University of Maryland area, uh, back into some cooler, less allergic weather uh, temperament. Oh, so that's it's pretty bad. great. <laughs> it's, I'm sure it's pretty nice uh, to not have all the homework, too. It For seems sure. like uh, both of you guys were pretty stacked as we got towards the end of the semester, so I bet it's nice not to have any uh, any homework to worry about. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. And then, actually, Ashton is uh, hanging out. He's 20 minutes from me right now as we talk here. He is at uh, University of Nebraska at Omaha. And we scored some pretty sweet dorms for those guys uh, for the course of the summer. And uh, Ashton, welcome to uh, Cyber Frontiers from Omaha. Yeah, my uh, first, first podcast from... From uh, the UNO campus, so it should be fun. What do you What do you think of Omaha so far? Um, it's 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 been pretty cool. I uh, got to see the town a pretty good amount yesterday when I used the bike share, so that was that was cool. The old uh, I, I went to Old Market, is it called? The old, it's called old Market, mm -hmm. yeah, cobblestone area. That was pretty uh, pretty quaint, and that was fun. Um, I, I have I've not seen any corn yet. And that was kind of the stereotype, I guess, that all my friends and I had that we were going to see a lot of when I, I was going to see a lot of corn when I came down here. But I think I'm going to have to maybe wait wait a little far uh, wait a little while and go a little farther from the city to to see that because I kind of just flew right into Omaha and I haven't seen the surrounding area at all. Yeah, that's one of the misconceptions about the Midwest. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of corn out here, <laughs> but you fly into Omaha and uh, Omaha looks like any other Midwestern city. Uh, when you're in it, uh, you don't, you know, we we don't. Uh, you have to get outside of it. But you know, go 20 minutes in either direction, and here to Chicago or here to Denver or here to to uh, anything north, because there's nothing up there. Or Kansas City to the south. Well, there's Kevin's up there speaking. 
of that all the way over to the right, uh, coming in and joining us again on Seven Frontiers, Kevin. Schoonover up in the frozen parts of America still. You got snow on the ground, Kevin? Uh, we do not. We do not. But the last time I was in Denver about two weeks ago, they still had a few drifts floating around. So <laughs> really? I, I had to tease our Denver division about uh, how you could live in a place that had snow on the ground at the end of May. But uh, we're, we're pretty well cleared off. But we are having rain here too, like everywhere else in the uh, central part of the U.S. Yeah, it seems like the whole country, except California. I was mentioning we have family out there, and they, they are... They are in severe drought conditions in, in California. Well, we're not here to talk weather. We're kind of here to <laughs> talk about big data. Kevin, we had you on in Cyber Frontiers 20, and that's kind of a prerequisite for this show. So if you're listening to this and you didn't listen to Cyber Frontiers 20, stop it, go back, listen to all of 20, because a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to be built on this. Then you can join us again. Two good hours, so if you haven't done that, head back. But Christian, let me throw it over to you uh, and kind of set the stage for us as we come into this. Maybe do a quick recap, and when I say quick, maybe 30, 40 seconds recap of 20, where we went. And then we got to, when we got to the end of the show, we were like, wow, we've got a lot of stuff we didn't get to. So talk a little bit about that. Bring us up to speed. Sure. So on the last show, we really focused on what are some of the kind of Cutting, more cutting-edge technologies that are that are on the fringe between coming out of research, being put into production on a regular basis, and how is that impacting uh, real-world IT challenges? And a lot of the technologies that we typically talk about on the show, um, they're very, uh, they have big bubbles around them, big hype curves, and it's unclear how effective they're being in solving certain challenges in the enterprise and where the cost benefits are, where the technology benefits are. So in the last show, we, we broke down uh, look, taking a deep dive into uh, software-defined networking, virtualization. Uh, we talked a bit about cloud computing, different types of containers, and we didn't even really get as much to the, uh, the data side. We did talk a lot about uh, relational databases and the different strategies and some of the talent strategies uh, for hiring within IT organizations, uh, but now we want to kind of come full circle and get back into the conversation around um, really the word that kind of started all of the, I think, modern hype bubble, which is Hadoop. Um, and, you know, as Kevin has uh, pointed out uh, to me before, it's been good, but what's next? What's coming? Where are we with it now? Uh, Kevin, when we talk about where Hadoop is in enterprise IT environments you're seeing, how much of an adoption rate have you seen? How current are people staying with the releases of it? And how mission critical is it to your organization and to partner organizations that you're uh, working with? Oh, that's a good question. You know, and it, it uh, not to uh, drift into marketing too much, but um, my, my company has a catchphrase that we're five years out and we're thinking of technologies that are five years out and when I first saw that catchphrase it was uh, one of our presidents said you know we've got people working on things that are five years out so I asked my boss you know, who's working on these things that are five years out and it was pointed out that that I was working on things that were five years out so this was all news to me but it does in, in the in the IT world we live in we all know we've got early adopters who jump on things right away and some of the folks who were having some of the worst issues, and I, and I think it's part of my angst with the, the actual name Big Data, is 
is it, it's the folks that had these big, you know, petabytes of data and information, a lot of government agencies, a lot of uh, scientific agencies. And those folks have, have really, you know, I think they did a quick uh, dabbling with Hadoop, dove in headfirst with it, um, are really pushing some of the limits of the hardware from, uh, you know, some of the Hadoop engines and, and you know, lots of folks are putting uh, a lot more processor and memory and disk performance against these, uh, you know, these uh, appliances for, for uh, grinding up data. So I would say they fall into categories where the bleeding edge guys who really wanted to drive this, they're staying on the latest, greatest, any innovation, anything that will buy them more uh, processing power or cut their time to uh, gathering the information they they're looking for, um, and I guess the other catchphrase we look at is it's it's you know turning data into information um, as a good way to define what's happening there. The next set we're starting to see people who um, I think are just growing out of those uh, usual reporting tools and are heading into the idea of well what could what could a a big data environment or what could a Hadoop environment do for me and I think they're in more of the investigative phase right now and then there's there's still literally a, a ton of uh, folks who unfortunately I think have a perception that um, you know their data is not big enough data to dive in with big data type of practices and and that's uh, you know that's an area we're trying to focus on is um, regardless of the size of data you have, um, everybody's data is important, and uh, and there's you know it's looking at what value can you grab from that data, and I think it spills back into something we talked a little bit about on the last show is the modern IT department really needs to be not just folks that protect data and keep PCs and servers and things running, um, they need to give back to the business. They, they need to be an integral part of the business units themselves. So that's, that's kind of where we're seeing the adoption uh, phases take and, and I think some folks who are in that uh, exploratory phase around Hadoop are always kind of asking the question of, you know, what's next? Uh, what, how, how is Hadoop growing? Or um, who are the up-and-comers uh, that, that maybe uh, are competitive solutions to that? Yeah, no, without a doubt. And so when we look at where the trend of data is, I think we started, we talked about relational last time. Um, we were, haven't really talked too much about archival data and archival storage, but a lot of what is kind of controlling the market right now it seems to be the real-time streaming data. And it's kind of a, it's kind of remains to be seen how much of that data is retained for a certain period of time or if it's just stream in, stream out, generate alerts. Ashton, I know you've worked with streaming data sets a bit in this regard. Um, talk a little bit about what the what the general design of a streaming system looks like and how common it is that you want to retain the data that's being streamed as real time. I think that there's a lot of potential for certain projects to be done using streaming, and others are better suited to you know the the batch processing, um, and they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, the the individual tasks may be, but you're gonna want to you you're gonna want to have both at at your disposal in most cases. So, I, I think one of the better applications of streaming we've used it for is aggregating a lot of data into discrete intervals. So maybe taking 
you know, but, uh, doing some pre-processing so that you, when you have it in your databases, it's it's in a, a more uh, condensed format, or it's in it's in a you're you're just pulling the most salient data out, or you just have the metadata or something like that. Um, and that that we, we, the the tool that we used primarily when I worked at SGT was the was Storm Apache Storm, and it was it was pretty good for that. But other things lend them, a lot of things lend themselves better to the batch processing. So I, I think that you know having having both is is pretty important. Yeah, and and um, one of the things that uh, I was talking to at the gym, I was talking not too long about was um, we're we were in the process recently of upgrading all of our security log data for uh, the Maple Grove hosting platform. Um, to use all streaming real-time event alerts and monitoring. And some of those technologies are in the same space but don't use any of the traditional Hadoop ecosystem stack. The, uh, the NoSQL and Elasticsearch solutions have become alarmingly popular um, in the last year, I would say, and are an incredibly powerful way of creating and doing um, high-performance in indices, which... Um, really I don't think was emphasized as much with Hadoop itself. It was much more batch and iterative, uh, but it really is an incredibly fast and powerful solution even when it's in a non-distributed mode. Just the, the, the design of the system in a, in a single node or single tenant environment um, is pretty impressive. And, and that's again completely separated from the ecosystem that I think the original you know Hadoop environment came with, but I don't know as if we would have those types of streaming technologies if Hadoop hadn't pushed itself out right. into the uh, internet and started a conversation. Um, Kevin, I know one of the things that uh, we haven't gotten to talking about yet is in-memory processing, and I know that's something that is related to streaming for, for sure and really covers um, kind of the the flip side of having this huge JBOD configuration, which was what HDFS tried to get at. Um, have you been seeing in-memory technologies being um, used in production, and do we do we see the, the market having a need for both, or are we going to start to gravitate towards all in-memory processing as the size of these um, clusters makes it such that you can have multi-terabyte uh, RAM clusters? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, I, and I think you'll see uh, a lot of both. Um, we're already seeing, so, you know, and not to put on my sales guy hat, but from, uh, from our company business point of view, we are seeing a lot of activity around SAP HANA, and, you know, SAP's HANA projects are all kind of revolve around that in-system memory type of route, and, uh, and you know, a good uh, an acquaintance of mine uh, for many years uh, works at Silicon Graphics, and you know, yes, they're still around and they're doing extremely well in in-system memory products. Their server designs are set up to handle that. So I think you'll you'll see a couple of things. Is um, uh, and. I forgot to post on Jim's site. There's a great uh, graphic of the uh, impact of Moore's law on processing capability. I'll I'll pop that one up once the uh, show is done here. But um, uh, just as we're seeing the 
the processor performance continue to ramp. Um, I think that's going to help drive a lot of those in-system memory um, compute process functions. But uh, likewise, <clears throat> you know, we've we've seen now with guys like uh, SanDisk, uh, you know, on the verge of terabyte SSDs and four terabyte SSDs before the end of the year, uh, we're you know, I think very high-speed JBODs are are right on the cusp. So, um, the good news is, from a consumer point of view, is you know these are. Uh, it was Andy Grove from Intel who always talked about you, you really need a killer app to drive hardware. You know, th there's no reason to come up with faster processors and faster memory and faster disk if there isn't a killer app for it. And oddly enough, I think uh, big data has become that killer app. You know, people are now specking in higher performance products, uh, you know, faster products because they can see uh, a real uh, uh, differentiation by adopting some of these new technologies. We, I'll say though, we moved SSD, uh, uh, especially for some a lot of the in-memory stuff, for our Oracle um, mm -hmm. databases early. And we might have been an early adopter of that, but it, it was just one of those things where we got much better performance if we threw hardware at it early in the in, in the game, you know, uh, as, as far as uh, where it actually gets processed at. So I think we've been there maybe two years already, uh, just around our Oracle software. And this is for kind of our financials and some of our financials processing, right? So, I mean, there's some other things that we do for our customers as well where that helped. Mm -hmm. But we saw, you know, four to five times increase by going SSD for everything, uh, early in the process, r rather than waiting on that to come. So we're we're already in that space, Kevin, a lot. Yep. No, and and you know, from a company that sells that technology, we're we're selling more and more SSD all the time. It's interesting when you mention that because it, it's a bit of what we touched on last show, and I've got a couple of bullets to chat about in this show as well. But I think what's breaking through the purchases um, as, as if we go down and kind of decipher. Uh, and and I won't won't ask you too much about the decision at your company, but we're finding that more and more of those performance-related decisions, like you just described, are not made by the storage admin or the network admin. It's the application owners. So when you talk about the database, you know we'll see a database owner approach from a performance point of view, or you know VDI is a huge one. People deploy big VDI deployments, and then they run into the eight o'clock issue. Uh, we hit eight o'clock four times in the U.S., and at eight o'clock you have groups of people logging on and banging on the system. So what can I do to alleviate those things? So that's just one one more of those shifts in IT decision making and purchasing is, um, you know, decisions aren't just made by the hardware guys anymore. Much more of the decisions are being made at that application layer, uh, and and the majority of those decisions are the kind of things we're talking about on the yeah. show here. Yeah, and in our case, it was just pressure from the business unit wanting faster and faster performance and and so our sysadmins uh, are pretty ahead of the game on some things said hey let's just get out uh, let's get this out and get it done and and so they moved to that um, a couple years back so uh, Chris, I, oh, go ahead Ashton sorry to interrupt I had kind of a, a quick question might be kind of stupid but um, is is SSD considered in memory processing because I think more you know like RAM and uh, I don't know if that's correct or if it's kind of a, a gray area. 
it's uh, no, you're correct. So SSD is disk. It's out on the bus, but there are some there's some really kind of unique things happening right now. Is uh, um, if you hit SanDisk's website, they have a partnership with a company where they're building um, DIMMs that set in memory slots but look like hard disks. So now you're running a hard disk at at memory bus speed, so it, it's starting to get blurred as to. But mm -hmm. but from our discussion of in-memory processing, I would say that would be RAM in the system um, running. Yeah, correct. And and uh, have have there been any standards that um, your company has seen for whether or not SSDs can and should be used for the archival persistent data as opposed to staging areas for high performance rates? I plead the fifth on all accounts. <laughs> um, you know, we've, uh, so when we talk to our storage manufacturers, folks like EMC, Network Appliance, HP, um, the general consensus is that the failure rate of SSDs is about the same as the failure rate on hard drives. Um, so they tend to try and, tr you know, tend to treat them in the same vein uh, that said, I'd like to say SSDs are getting more reliable, but in essence, going to triple layer flash and and all the technology changes we're going to to um, uh, wring as much capacity out of flash as possible. Theoretically, flash becomes less reliable because we're you know mm -hmm. we're, we're staging them up that way. So um, I, I think the, the, the agenda is still uh, not settled yet on long-term storage on SSDs. Um, I, I think it's more, it should be fine because more of the issue with SSDs is the, uh, is the write erase cycle issues. Um, but I do think, you know, that's, that's an area where when I talk to the hard drive guys, we're really seeing, you know, hard, in, in, in other forums we participate in, you're starting to see more things delineated where um, a hard drive, we have a uh, NAS flavors of hard drives, we have desktop flavors of hard drives, and now with uh, shingle writing techniques from Seagate, we're coming up with archival style hard drives. So okay. I, think, uh, I think we're going to see more delineation in the types of hard drive functions to address that than perhaps the SSD. And uh, how about uh, along along similar lines? How about I mean, really, the only if, if we're gonna say that the failure rate is similar, then I would argue that density is probably the only place where spinning disks still hold the advantage. Um, I mean, we're we're using four terabyte drives pretty regularly now mm -hmm. um, that are reliable, relatively high performance, enterprise grade, and um, work well when you're in a large JBOD environment, whereas, um, you know, you could spend the money to have a cluster that's faster, but but might only store, uh, you might only have a fourth of the total storage capacity if you mm -hmm. go with all one terabyte SSDs instead of four terabyte um, HP enter enterprise class drives, which then kind of begs the question um, as to where the happy medium is between using the uh, traditional hard disk and um, in-memory and solid-state uh, platforms, and and that seems to be uh, reflective as well in uh, the most uh, recent release of Hadoop uh, 2.6. 2.7 just came out a week ago, but uh, since 2.6, they introduced these um, storage tiers where 
you can basically have pluggable interfaces into HDFS where you can set up for the first time different storage policies. So I can set up a storage policy for writing to a JBOD. Um, I can create a RAM disk that is going to um, house all my temporary writes when I run a MapReduce job. I can have an SSD uh, tiered storage layer and I can set the individual folders and or endpoints within the cluster that I want to use each of those different storage resources. So I can, as I'm transforming, loading, and, and outputting my analytics, I can just, I know what portions of my cluster are going to benefit from having those resources, and I can allocate them specifically, which I find is a pretty interesting um, intermediate solution, given that they just, uh, that, that API for doing all that is considered in a beta state, but I have a feeling it's going to start getting used more widely um, as one, one of the things I found out of my research um, with this especially is that a lot of these nodes are coming with really big memory capabilities but in the traditional big data compute environment um, we're not, you know, a lot of these processes are Java and Java creates a TEEP, and you might set the memory settings how you want for map side, reduce side, etc. Uh, but it still never really saturates uh, the heaps once they get above a certain size threshold. And then what you end up having is a job that, um, no matter what you try and tune those memory parameters to, the actual physical usage of your RAM is really not getting above maybe 50 or 60 percent in the best case and then you're left with all this deadweight space of RAM that just goes unutilized even though you plan to have it used by those applications so that's when you kind of say well what are some are some strategies I can use to get back that extra RAM that's just sitting there doing nothing um, and put it to, to good use. So I, I've done some testing with the stage temporary files and it does help a little bit um, but it's still, it, it's a pretty difficult question because it, it changes as your data changes um, and so it really requires good understanding of what type of analytics you're going to see implement that tiered storage architecture. Christian, did, is that similar to a cache, or what, what's the difference between the storing of the temporary files and uh, yeah. the cache? So, um, in a in a traditional Hadoop environment, when you're running a job, it uh, as it's writing out map output tasks and the shuffler is, is taking data in to be reduced, uh, it has to write temporary files back to the hard drive um, as part of the job lifecycle. And so, those are typically written to that temporary folder location specified in the configuration. And then, when the job is over, they're cleared off. Um, so that's that's the one case. You can also set these. Um, storage mechanisms up though to store and write the output for the actual job. Um, in my case though, I mean, I had maybe across my cluster I had about 400 gigabytes of, of RAM to build this pooled RAM disk and it was about you know 50, gig, uh, 50 gigabyte RAM per cluster and you really can't um, I mean, once, you, once you're getting over a half terabyte job, which is really small, you're not going to be able to write the actual output of that job. So, But having the temporary files lowers the overall uh, I.O. seeks that your cluster is doing when it's processing your actual data. So it, it is pretty useful. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it, it's, you know, I think HDFS has a strategy of it, but... I don't think we're there yet, uh, Kevin, with the with the uh, in-memory processing, and uh, I say that especially because a lot of folks in industry 
um, across the board are, are telling me that you know uh, Spark, widely popular, one of the first real applications in the open source community to take off with in-memory processing and make some of the traditional uh, stacks look performance uh, deprived, but it's got problems and it's got really bad bugs that have made <laughs> production implementations a living hell and um, yeah. I, I know that we've we've had to actually patch some of these bugs ourselves and you know there's really you're shooting in the dark as to whether or not you're getting what you actually think you're getting of course I'm sound I'm, I'm saying this sounding like I have paid for some enterprise class license from the open source community <laughs> to have this work right um, but I, I still don't think as a as a broad community um, we're, we're not there. So I, I have to jump in with a quick commercial that Jim can cut and paste as a commercial, but if, if for people listening, if you think about this, the probably the last 10 minutes of conversation, um, if you know anybody in high school who's good at math at all, this is probably one of the best career paths you could go down, because um, Everything around big data, and you know, my my company has a whole semiconductor side of the business doing uh, Internet of Things and IoT and devices. Which guess what? The the monetization of IoT is going to be big data. And uh, and the the thing that we're earlier on in the conversation when you asked about the adoption rate, I see a direct a direct linearity to the adoption rate of big data practices with companies that have invested in data scientist uh, folks, people like yourself, and and people who are, are living and breathing that aspect of it. Um, and the conversation, you know, kind of the points we were just talking about drives home the point that I think at one point in time there was a thought process that I could be, uh, you know, a data science person and just focus on the data, but there's really a need to be that that well-rounded um, understanding the compute aspect, understanding the storage aspect. You we, we haven't hit that point of just pushing the button and, and you know grinding up the data and getting it out. So um, you know, kudos to you. You guys have, have really jumped in from a knowledge base point of view of understanding the tweaking and tuning and the aspects and and to you know, some of the points you were making. That's probably one of the next big things we're going to be looking at is. Um, what kind of tools are out there? You know, is it things like Cloudera or Hortonworks or you know some of these different technologies that layer on top of all this that will start to help give you an idea of, hey, you've got plenty of processing performance, but your in-system RAM is is not keeping up, or you need to be caching out these devices. So it's not just a knowledge of the data, but it is a real knowledge of the compute kind of functions and how how these things uh, go together and evolve. Yeah, and it's amazing too to see the lay the level of abstraction that's starting to take place. Um, I was I was uh, talking recently with a new startup company that has basically built a custom appliance that separates the your compute from your storage. Right. So in a traditional Hadoop cluster environment, you have you know, let's say each node is a four U system sitting on a rack somewhere. That limits you to at most. 15 data disks per node, um, and you might not have a good balance of CPU cores to disk I/O. And so, what they've basically done is using, you know, your regular JBot enclosures. You know, if I were to go buy a um, Supermicro 36U JBot enclosure and 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 put all those disks in, 
um, they've basically developed an appliance that uses a SAS controller and fiber interconnect to allow you to splice those hard drives to the compute nodes in your environment. So it's not a virtual solution. It's actually this, this hardware appliance is physically splitting which hard drives in that JBOD belong to which compute nodes so that you're basically, you're not scaling based on nodes, you're scaling based on the physical component that's lacking. Um, and now we've gotten down to a point where we're actually doing things at the component level um, and, and seeing the, the fact that the compute, the co number of cores can be split from uh, the hard drives you have in your environment is pretty impressive. Um, I don't know if it would be as useful to have the same thing for like, I don't know, a JBOD memory enclosure. It sounds ridiculous, but, um, but you get the point, which is that we're now kind of abstracting, creating more APIs that give you kind of the bulk core service rather than the, the finesse and the sprinkles on top, um, which I think is important because if you actually want to get high throughput, high performance systems, it is very hard to have an, you know, an Agogo Magic script is what I call it that will go out there and figure out all the numbers and just boom, it's going to work in the in the average case. And that's that's something I've been hammering home to folks is that if you're tuning these systems and you're designing these systems to the average case, you're doing it wrong um, because a lot of times you're going to see small. Uh, data sets that have high velocity but low volume and then a minute later you're gonna see huge volume and low velocity and guess what your average case is gonna perform terrible in both of those situations um, so tuning on a per job basis having that hardware baseline profile right I mean those are things that I, I have to envision is a huge challenge for any enterprise IT environment adopting these technologies in a reasonable way because I honestly don't think that your average IT environment is as hypersensitive about performance. You know, if they have a quad-core system and 16 gigs of RAM and they know it's what they need to install an operating system and a, and a SQL database, they're, they're, they're off and they're done. Um, but how many people take the time to properly design and test and do benchmarking on those high-performance systems is, is a question. Um, and the amount of time and money it takes just to tune those systems right is also really high right now. Um, I know you mentioned earlier that uh, you know a question for for philosophy's sake, are Cloudera, Hortonworks, and um, Pivotal all locked on Hadoop? And I think this is kind of the perfect example of you know all these companies were built around one platform. Cloudera was built specifically around adopting their own branch and distro of Hadoop and growing and running with it. But I think all of these companies are going to have to evolve to start addressing these issues outside of the specific ecosystem and if those companies are to survive they're gonna definitely have to um, find ways to start addressing these issues and, and moving in and out of those technologies um, and, and yes drive scale is the company that I was that I was mentioning so well, you didn't have to blurt it out <laughs> well I, I think I figured that was an important fact for everyone at all <laughs> now we're uh, it, it's just as you were talking about it, I'm thinking Oh, wait a minute. I think I've been talking to those guys, too. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and it is very, very revolutionary, very breakthrough uh, kind of idea. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, the the thing that kind of pops, keeps popping into my head in this equation as well is is uh, back uh, back in the Stone Age when, when I graduated from college and we wrote computer programs on punch cards. Um, 
a lot of the IT departments and companies were were there, there was not really a central IT department. There were as business units or as divisions of the company needed things, you kind of spun up what was your IT department. And over time, they you know that that became the central IT department. Um, around data science, I'm seeing kind of the same behavior pop up. Is is the around big data and around the need for data scientist uh, type individuals, um, I think we're going to see it happen where maybe the engineering department has a need there or the marketing department or finance. And I think we're going to see this little bit of shift back to um, in, you know, uh, a little uncertainty about the role of where the data scientist, do they live in the IT department, do they live in the business unit? Um, they probably bridge both from that point of view. Yeah. No. And and I, I find ourselves going right back to the conversation of who's going to be in in these environments building these systems in the next five to ten years. Um, but but yeah. And and that's the 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 drive scale solution is when I first talked to these guys, I, I was honestly like, where are we going with this? Um, but really, the fact that they've made something happen at a physical scale, what typically you can only do in a virtualized environment, is pretty impressive, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but those are the types of companies and people and products that need to be made around getting the performance right. Because when we start scaling up the millions of billions of devices that make up the Internet of Things, these clusters are going to have to be able to understand that data and process it quickly enough. Um, you could have the best designed application to analyze your data in the world, but if it's doing it too slow, then you're going to miss the key insight that you needed 15 minutes ago. Um, and, you know, I don't know if we're at that point yet. I mean, we're generating, as a, as a society, just incredible volumes of information, of which we're probably really only leveraging at most 5%. Um, I can't rationally conceive us getting much higher than that uh, in the current state of how things are set up uh, because there's really just no way to capture the overall information flow or at least do streaming on, you know, the noise aspect um, and how important is that noise in, in creating mm -hmm. and, and kind of driving uh, where these systems are going. Um, I, I don't know. To, to me, there's there's kind of something to be said for acknowledging the fact that we've done a pretty good job in the last five years of getting these technologies to the point where they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think they're still incredibly immature at this phase, um, but looking back at, you know, 2008, first version of Hadoop is out. We're all stuck in the world of batch processing. First white paper comes out from Google. I mean, the, the, the economy and the level of innovation around the entire um, sector has grown tremendously in, in a very short amount of time. Um, and so I, I also wonder how the, um, well, the name is escaping me, um, Go, the name of when... Processing power grows by uh, double. Moore's law. Thank you. Um, what is the Moore's law equivalent going to be um, for the data science community? And mm -hmm. I think I don't think we've really gotten there yet. Gartner will probably be the first one to make us a, a blanket statement about that. 
Um, but it's it's all really interesting um, where it's going. And and on the Internet of Things thread, I'm just going to throw it in here because Jim talked about it earlier on Home Gadget Geeks, and I'm just going to keep saying, stranger danger, you know something is up when Google decides that they're going to be the operating system that powers the entire Internet of Things. So um, everyone should be watching out very closely for what's what's going to come of that. <laughs> So uh, it, it will, well, it, you, you've touched on Internet of Things. I, I've shared a screen here, so Jim, I don't know if you can lock into it. But so I, I uh, in college, I was an electrical engineer and got into distribution on the semiconductor side of the business, chip level side of the business, and then uh, back in the early '90s, rolled into the computer product side. A, a big thing on that that. Internet of Things or the device end of the business is those companies are very heavily focused on um, the the sensor, the device itself, and sometimes they don't always see the clear picture of the monetization value. This is one I like to share from a story point of view. Is these guys set out to make the most sensitive uh, recording stethoscope for veterinaries, and you know I grew up on a dairy farm. Back when a, a hundred milking cows was uh, was a big dairy farm, and now that's a tiny, almost non-existent dairy farm. Um, so you have huge feedlots, whether it's dairy cattle, beef cattle, and disease can spread really rampantly. And you know, so these guys set out and made this great stethoscope with recording capabilities. But the real magic of this stethoscope is that um, they've built a database over three years of six million cows and they can predict pneumonia or different heart and lung diseases um, very, very accurately by having, you know, not necessarily a heavily trained veterinary checking each cow, but a lab technician or a, a, a vet in training. Um, the, the stethoscope records the heart, lungs, whatever, you know, stomach, whatever sound you're wanting to record. Um, uploads through Bluetooth through your phone back to the database and by the time you get back to the main building and of course it has a barcode reader so it matches up to you know either an RFID tag or a barcode tag on the cow um, you can quickly predict uh, you know many different respiratory or ambulatory diseases so they, these guys went from thinking how are we going to get poor veterinarians to pay for this expensive stethoscope to we'll give you the stethoscope, you pay for the monthly service of our pre-prediction functions. So you know, total kind of a flip-flop on an industry that relied so heavily on the individual is now in a position to you know really work off from a big data point of view of you know determining health of animals from uh, uh, you know uh, archive records. Hmm. I think that's a model that's kind of. Uh, you can see in a lot of other places where you offer the you know the the physical good and it's it's relatively inexpensive or free uh, and the the you know the data processing is is what's what's really the valuable part that you can monetize um, actually what what comes to mind this isn't a perfect analogy but it reminds me of uh, cell phones <laughs> because you can get the the uh, the actual cell phone is usually really inexpensive with the plan but the plan will will cost you a lot and it, it's not I mean it, in the long run it's going to be a lot more money than the uh, you know the, the cell phone or the stethoscope in this case and well, even in like you'll see that in apps too uh, like you know 
again, not not the perfect comparison, but the, the apps are usually free, but then they have the, the in-store purchases, or to use them uh, past a certain level, it's it's more expensive. Absolutely. Yeah. Ash, I mean, you're you're making a great point in the sense the values in the in the insight that comes with it, not in the gadget. And I do a gadget show, so I got to be careful about how I say <laughs> this, right? But it's not always in the gadget itself, but the the insights that come from that. And I think when we when we move the monetization model to the insight as opposed to the equipment, it makes more sense. And and I think people are more willing to pay for it when they see it that way than just you know. Just the, I mean, the value of me using my phone is in ways, not in having the phone in my car when that happens, right? When I'm commuting and I can avoid a, a traffic jam or I can, you know, uh, avoid a road hazard, that provides value for me, and I'm, I, I would be more willing to pay for that service than, and, and I think most of the American public is too. At the same point, as than the hardware itself. So I, mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. Well, yeah. And I, one one final example that actually I think is probably the most appropriate is uh, I, I've used the the web PHP framework Laravel, which is this uh, kind of cool newer uh, PHP framework, and it's you know it's open source and, and free, but they have they provide hosting that that you can you can pay for, so it's kind of more along the lines of you know, I, I mean it's not the, the the insight I think that's the best example of the actual insight as a service that that I've seen, but there's a lot of other. Oh no, we have another there. as a service acronym. <laughs> yep, that one's probably taken with something. Insight as a insight. service. Oh god. Here it comes. Please don't take credit it's, for it creating. Just rolls, it just rolls off the tongue. Oh no. I don't have enough. We don't have enough alphabet suit already. I'm I'm starting a new service called My Opinion as a Service. You can, <laughs> you can get it from many locations. <laughs> hey, on the uh, on the subject of you know the as things transition and when we talked about kind of some of the other alternatives to Hadoop, um, you know for folks who aren't familiar, LexisNexis uh, made their name through legal analysts. Uh, um, you know, basically searching legal records, giving lawyers a quick and fairly easy way to search uh, case history. Um, they have uh, uh, grabbed their technology and uh, packaged it up in something they call HPCC and uh, are coming at the, the, the big data market as well. So I, I think we're, uh, when you were earlier, you were asking kind of about the adoption of Hadoop. I think in addition to that, other companies are coming to realize, hey, wait a minute, we do that type of thing with our own technology. Can we bottle up our technology and sell it affordably and and really make a difference with it? Right, but yeah, and it just goes right back to my earlier point, which is a company realizes that their particular implementation of a service is more broadly applicable, and so then they're building another abstraction, and that abstraction is becoming available. It kind of scares me to think that, you know, if 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 the knowledge of our present day workings of computer systems were to be wiped off the planet and someone had to restart, would they? And all they had was the high level understanding of the abstractions that they currently had. Would they ever be able to work their way back to um, starting with assembly and and, and working their way mm. forward? And honestly, 40, 50 years from now. Are we still going to be training computer scientists that know how to do assembly? I honestly don't know. How many people? How how many fewer people will be as attuned to low-level systems development uh, as there are today? And how important will that continue to be? Um, kind of kind of freaks me out a little bit. 
Um, but is that that's second or third on the list to what freaks me out the most with all of this, whether it's Internet of Things or data analytics, which is, as a security evangelist, these technologies freak me out. I mean, we can barely keep WordPress instances secure um, with plugins coming out that they don't even use the right functions for. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're looking at the scale of billions of devices using, oh, one unified operating system. That that could never go wrong. Um, of course, others will persuade you into saying that this one unified operating system will be more secure than what else can be out there. Um, wow, I'm really hating on them. I should probably stop. Um, but um, the takeaway here is that I don't know any relatively capable security-minded person who is in the security business who is going to be out of work with the rapid implementation that these uh, devices and services are coming online. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is really just incredible. Um, and I think it's going to get to a point where so- something is going to have to give way that forces us to rethink about how we're doing security with these things because I think we're getting by all right right now. Um, but I-, I just I have that sense that there's going to, there's going to be something five ten years down the road that makes everything we've been doing as a security strategy obsolete and then we're gonna have to kind of backpedal a little bit mm-hmm. um, no, so I think your your fear is well founded and I I'm, I have I haven't uh, gotten my my smooth elevator pitch down on it yet but in a lot of ways I think what it is is we were comfortable with data security when we didn't do anything with our data it's yep. back to that old, it's, it, you know, the IT guys just backed it up and they protected it and you didn't do anything with it, so you didn't have that many touch points. Yeah. Well, now, now we're starting to do stuff with it and I think, you know, there are lots of different techniques, technologies, different things going on. Um, oddly enough, I've, I've said it before and I'm re- really sticking with this one, is at uh, VMware's Partner Exchange this year, there was, you know, as, as I whiteboard out IT departments, you know, I, I, I draw the agile data center and big data and mobility and how things are moving back and forth and I put the cloud in and and I, I draw a big circle around all that and, and stamp it with security because my, my pitch is, you know, no matter where it is, it's your responsibility to keep that information secure. The twist that VMware brought up was instead of drawing this big circle around everything, you just write security in each inside of each of the areas. And the differentiation is your security embedded in the mobile aspect of your uh, mm-hmm. enterprise is different than your big data, is different than the data center, is different than cloud. You're looking for different things. Maybe in big data, it's data loss prevention. Maybe in the data center, it's uh, um, access control and network identification, intrusion detection types of things. So that's what we're seeing in the um, security end of this. And and before I forget, Jim, if you if you ever want to do a security show, um, my manager that works for me is is really is really really good, and I could delegate him to uh, p- participate in one of these. I think you guys would have a really really good time. Maybe we could have him on this program and not create another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that that would be good. That would be good. It'd be a good fit here. So the. Uh, um, Trying to think, I had another thought there. Sorry, I threw you off there. No, 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 it'll it'll come back around. But I, I think you're you're right. Is the um, the security thing? Oh, oh, the the other thing is 
we are probably on the early phases of something I think Europe is much more sensitive to is the differentiation between security and privacy. And, and that is another thing that starts rolling out with the big data aspects. We talked about that a little bit in the last show, but I think we're going to get hit with a few things as we're doing you know, the best we can to mine information. We're going to probably end up keeping data secure, but probably stepping on some privacy issues from time to time. And, and I think that will just be a learning experience that we bring together. Yeah. I just say, want to say one thing with regards to your your first statement, Christian, Christian about uh, the kind of the loss of the low level languages in the future, the the potential loss of those languages, um, and I kind of think that it needs to be a push in in the education of these that you don't lose that because um, every time I learn about you know I I don't have a very expansive knowledge of hardware or assembly or low-level programming languages. But every time I learn something about them, it kind of changes the way that I think about the higher-level languages because they're so dependent on those, and it's ultimately what they compile down to or, or have to interact with. Right. And I think that that's really important to understand how things work so that you can take advantage of them even if you're not directly interfacing with, you know, the memory resources. Maybe you're using a managed your own memory language or you're not directly have to care about how uh, you know whether it's it's uh, hard drive memory or random access memory, but you should still be able to know what it is so that you can best take advantage of those resources. And uh, I think that's an important educational aspect that you have people learn about those, even if they're not working with assembly all the time. Um, they can still have an impact on the way that they use other languages. And the same thing with the uh, security side is that's something that's very lacking in in any class I've taken. I've never been you know, challenge to find a secure way of doing things as long as it works, um, and I think that's that's a huge problem. Like, I, there, at least now there's there's contests at Maryland, and I and I want to participate in this year's uh, the Build It Break It contest, where you get points for accomplishing the task, but you lose the points if it's not secure, uh, and you can actually gain points by breaking other people's uh, programs on that that same thinking. So I, I think that's really should be a a, a paradigm that's uh, more closely followed in the future, so that we can take advantage of, you know, these these advances, but not lose the privacy and security that we have in the the low level languages as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and the and the design elements of what was done at the low level really didn't have security in in many respects in mind when these systems were first being built. Um, I mean, we've talked before about the first implementation of TCP/IP was not designed to be security in mind because it was a closed system at the beginning. Um, and so a lot of these things, especially when we talk Internet and thing, internet of things, big data, I think Kevin said it best when he was talking about there's a difference now between when we created all this data and shoved it off somewhere and it never got used, and now people are there's different touch points and endpoints and it's being used a lot more. Um, we're, getting, we're, we're getting to this point where now security is... is missing from the design because we weren't worried about it back in the days when we weren't doing those things and so we're sitting here trying to figure out how to basically put put patches up on the wall uh, to cover to cover holes because we're missing some of these uh, fundamental based elements and the more interconnected these things are becoming you know what what stored data that was 
previously not looked at or used for analytics, that's a perfect example of a closed system. It was backed up, it was put on a system, and it was set it, forget it. Now it's the data was created, 10 users want to touch it, and it's streaming to five different devices. And, well, where's the security model in that? Well, we don't really know because now it's not a closed system. Um, and so, especially when we're looking at IPv6 space and, and a lot of these systems where, you know, we used to take confidence, I think, and I think the average person who doesn't look into this enough um, when they're first getting into computing, they think, oh, private network space, private mm -hmm. address space. This is a closed system. How could security be an issue? Guess what? As soon as that gateway goes to a WAN or you have a phishing scam or your application was, you know, that all becomes irrelevant. It's a connected system. You've just created an endpoint. Um, and I really think for a long time people thought that there were these bubbles like, this is my home network, and then they would peek out and say, oh, there's the internet, there's Google over there, but oh, that can't touch me, that can't touch me. Um, it's so radically different, um, and, and it's really been there all along, but I think because the technologies, we're changing the way we're using the technologies, I think more of the average com computing uh, person and more of just the average user in general is starting to understand that it's kind of what I would call one web of corruption. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's it's going to be a battle. All right, does that uh, does that kind of wrap it up? Do you think, or at least for this discussion? Everybody took a deep breath at the same time, so that's usually a good, that's usually a good place to pause. I have pause. one, one yeah. final tidbit that does not fit in with what we're talking about. Well, it does kind of. It's It has to do with computers and uh, kind of big data. Uh, I I don't know. Maybe, I just thought this was funny. Um, but the I, I hadn't heard the word Bronto Bytes. I heard that <laughs> the first time today. Uh, and I thought it was a joke, but it's, it's an actual thing. And it's the... It's 1,000 uh, yada bytes, which is in turn 1,000 zettabytes and 1,000 exabytes. So uh, that's that's my interesting so, fact. So we've I, reached I we've reached that next. Somebody had to come up with the yeah. Bront Bronto and then, bytes. Yeah, and then the one after that is uh, geop byte. Yeah, I actually uh, we're there. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, uh, with that. Bronto bite, <laughs> we'll call it. We'll call it a wrap. Kevin, thanks for coming back, and uh, we'll, we'll try to take you up on your offer, uh, maybe to get your security guy. Yes. Uh, we'll work through Christian, as I'm pointing at him down here. Uh, point it, uh, get with Christian. We'll get that figured out. Did we? Did we actually get all the way through the second set of notes, or do I need nope. to schedule a third one of these? Well, we really didn't get to OpenStack cloud environments in the context of all the previous conversations we've had. Um, so there's at least another half a show left right. to be left Well, to we be can had. stretch a half a show into a full show. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so that shouldn't be easy. Kevin, we get you back uh, to maybe do one more? Love to, love to do an open stack show. We'll, we'll get that uh, get that on the calendar here before we're done uh, off air and uh, make sure that's going on. And, of course, Kevin, thanks for coming out tonight. Absolutely. Christian, great seeing you, and you're in the uh, native habitats of uh, Buffalo. So uh, glad that twice uh, a year. So uh, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> be back there at the uh, the headquarters for Maple Grove Partners, and of course, if you're interested, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I'm going to dabble a little bit, and and Christian's really getting good at the WordPress space, by the way. 
I've always been an Azure guy with WordPress because the setup is so easy, but actually Christian does it pretty well and is learning a ton. Uh, probably, I've probably forced that upon you, I think, in some ways, right, Evan? I mean, it, it really supports what we're trying to do with the platform for podcasters on the network, and, and, and WordPress is a really common publishing platform, so we want to make sure that it's as optimized and, and secure as possible. And like I said, with the with the wild way plugins are getting these days and what people want to use on WordPress, there's a lot that goes into the system's performance aspect of how to architect that right so that you're really doing... Um, good things for your application and not bad things. Yeah, and you've pushed me a little bit harder. I've learned more about WordPress security in the last maybe 10 days than I knew in the previous five years, and that's good from a user standpoint. I've gotten a little better feel maybe, and and I'm probably still not doing it all right, but gotten a little better better feel of what the average WordPress user could do to help their sysadmin <laughs> maybe secure down their own version of WordPress because it's it's there's some crazy things going on out there and having a tool on WordPress this last week that kind of monitors what's going on. Christian, I had no idea the sites were getting attacked as much oh, as they happens were all the time. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. that's one that's part of the reason why we rolled out a new uh, uh, real-time streaming analytics uh, log aggregator so that we could better track those attacks and make sure that they're either not providing a DDoS to our network, not providing a, a real substantiated threat, um, and that we're creating you know, uh, access lists of good and bad IPs and properly filtering and rotating those. And it's, it's not an easy thing to kind of get right and get fluid. Um, of course having users on the platform that are uh, security conscious helps keep rogue applications from popping up um, and having their own containers get infected. But from an architect standpoint, uh, I kind of want to make sure that the architecture does as much for the customer as possible so that even if they're not knowledgeable in that area, it's doing things behind the scenes um, and that it's uh, not restricting what they can do with the platform, but the security is there to support the activity. Yeah. No, it's been great. A couple, couple, uh, couple weeks of kind of intense work with you just as we've been kind of grinding through some of that. Like I said, for me, it's been good to kind of really dig into the nuts and bolts of WordPress and from a user standpoint, kind of know what I can do to help you. And uh, I think I'm getting a little better at that, so appreciate that. If you're interested in uh, hosting a WordPress site or any kind of site, actually, through Maple Grove Partners, uh, Christian's got a couple spaces that are open for you. You could come in. There's some pricing out there on his site head out to maplegrovepartners.com, and we'd love to have you take that spot and be customer over there. Ashton, I'm not going to lie. It's awesome having you in Omaha. I haven't seen you enough. You got here, and I feel like I just turned you over to the weekend. It was like, hey, welcome. I got to go. And uh, But uh, welcome to Omaha. Glad you're here. Yeah, it's going to be good to start a you know an actual week with Tuesday because – uh, everybody was trying to get out for this weekend, and then yeah. no one was here today <laughs> except no, us. It was just, <laughs> so, just uh, yeah. So it, it'll be great. Uh, it's good to be here. I'm liking the city so far, so I'm looking forward to doing some fun stuff. Good. Yeah, we got a Raspberry Pi. Actually, we have two Raspberry Pis coming on order coming in, and we're going to set those up in our intern room and do some stuff on that. Christian has offered. We're we're uh, dubbing it the Summer of Python, and so Christian's going to offer to teach us, and there'll be a lot of self-teaching in that as well. But some of the fun stuff uh, we'll get together as an intern group, and I'm I'm actually going to dive in and dig in and try and try and figure some of this stuff out. So we'll we'll dust off Jim's old coding skills and see if he if you can teach an old dog 
new tricks, and uh, we'll find that out uh, here pretty quickly. We want to remind you, of course, if you're if you're uh, shopping through Amazon, we have an Amazon affiliate link, theaverageguy.tv/amazon, and that's a great way to support the network, support the community. Here we have a tech scholarship fund. If you're interested in purchasing something, we'll buy that for you, send it to you. You just got to test it, write about it, and uh, either come on the show. And this is really on the home gadget geek side in most cases, but. Uh, and then uh, we will uh, we'll just let you keep it. So not a bad way to do that. And so appreciate you if you are purchasing out on Amazon. Uh, we appreciate you using our Amazon affiliate uh, link. And, of course, you, you can subscribe. All of a sudden, my voice just stopped working there. <laughs> it must be late. I think it is late. Uh, you can subscribe to everything going on. I actually have a new, a new newsletter coming out here and uh, actually probably just next weekend and you can get to that to theaverageguy.tv slash newsletter and if you want to subscribe to the podcast and we have video, audio and video capabilities for you, you can just head out to theaverageguy.tv slash subscribe. We'll be back, hopefully not, it won't take us a month but it only seems like it takes us a couple of weeks. We'll schedule another Cyber Frontiers and we'll be back with uh, number 22 here very shortly. We want to thank you for listening and with that we'll say goodnight everybody.